0: I knew I'd passed the point of no return when googling best acts for children in a coffee shop while my babies slept outside in their pram. Munching on rye bread, jam and cheese, together, welcome to Denmark, I was feeling the creeping sensation of caffeine working its magic when an email pinged up from my son's scout group. I was expecting pre-camp paperwork or an invitation to bake something. Instead, it read, On Wednesday we build bonfires. Bring daggers. No, he hasn't joined a gang. In the land of Vikings, children are regularly tooled-up fire starters. Something that could earn him jail time in the UK is normal for mini-Vikings, who are packing blades every Wednesday. By the age of six, the eldest already had his own dagger and toolkit, complete with hammer, saw, screwdrivers, flathead and crosshead. He couldn't read or write. Scandinavians aren't fussed about book learning before the age of eight but he was killing it at boat building and kindling campfires. It wasn't supposed to be like this. The girl about town, convinced she couldn't have children, never expected to become a mother of three living in rural Scandinavia. I lived and worked for 12 years as a journalist in London, and I had no intention of leaving, until out of the blue on wet Wednesday, my husband was offered his dream job working for Lego in Denmark. I was sceptical to start with, I had a career I'd worked hard for. We had a flat, good friends, close family. I had a life. Okay, so my husband and I both worked long hours, ran on adrenaline, and barely had time to see each other. We regularly had to bribe ourselves to get through the day, and we'd both been ill on and off for the past six months. But that was normal, right? We thought we were living the city dream. In reality, we were burnt out. We'd also been trying to start a family of our own with years of fertility treatment, only it never seemed to work. So when this other life possibility was dangled in front of us, the chance to swap everything we knew for the unknown, we stopped in our tracks. Denmark had just been voted the happiest country in the world, and I became fascinated by this. How had a tiny Nordic nation managed to pull off the Happiest Nation on Earth title? Was there something in the water? Could beer, bacon and pastries really make life so much better? I discovered that Denmark had regularly been voted one of the happiest countries in the world, in studies going back to the 1970s. We visited one weekend just to check the place out. And as soon as I stepped off the plane, I noticed there was something different about the Danes we met. They didn't look like us, for starters, quite apart from the fact that they were all strapping Vikings towering over me. They looked more relaxed and healthier. They walked more slowly. They took their time to stop and eat together, or talk, or just breathe, and we were impressed. My husband, an outdoorsy Yorkshireman not shy of a cagoule, was sold on the idea. He begged me to move, promising we'd relocate for my career next time, and I found myself agreeing. I quit my job as editor of MarieClaire.co.uk to go freelance and decided I would give it a year, investigating the Danish happiness phenomenon firsthand. I would look at a different area of living each month to see what Danes did differently, from food to family life, from design to daycare and education. Each month I would throw myself into living Danishly to see if it made me happier and if I could change the way I lived as a result. I would seek out sociologists, historians, scientists, economists, politicians, psychologists, everyone, in fact, to try to uncover the secrets to living Danishly. So we emigrated, swapping the bright lights and bustle of the UK's capital for rural Uland in the middle of winter. I didn't know anyone, didn't speak the language, and had no job. My Lego man husband left to go to work at 7.30am and I was all on my own. Almost. Our dog, a woolly mutt of unknown origin, his mother being something of a local bell, had come along for the ride. But canine conversational skills are substandard and I started to worry that I'd just made the biggest mistake of my life. But that was ten years ago, and I'm still here. The cultural gap between the UK and Denmark has only widened since I wrote about my initial experiences in the year of living Danishly, 2013. Since then, we've had Brexit, Boris and the Trump years. My first book ended with a newborn in tow. Now, I'm a mother of three. Born here, my children, a redhead and IVF twins, have only ever experienced the Viking way. Despite their dad and I both hailing from the UK and planning on just a year of living Danishly, here we are, a decade later. Mostly because we're incredibly disorganised, time has flown by, and it's all our children know, so I have an alarming amount of skin in the Viking parenting game, whether we end up staying or not. Parenting Danishly is strangely anachronistic at times, like an Enid Blyton book without the bigotry. And mini-Vikings are different from children back home. They eat differently, they learn differently, they play, dress, even sleep differently. They sing all the time, run, jump, climb, fall and get up again, out in nature for hours a day. It's cold and wet and uncomfortable, often, but they cope. In Denmark, children play outdoors, schools have no gates, and babies are left to nap outside in their prams. Because 79% of Danes trust most people. A statistic I found extraordinary, I don't trust 79% of my immediate family. Okay, so Denmark is a small country of just 5.8 million people. But that's about the size of South London, and I didn't trust everyone there either. In the UK and the US, levels of trust have fallen dramatically in the past 60 years, from around 60% to 30%. I grew up in the 1980s and 90s with the full force of the Stranger Danger campaign. Along with generations of schoolchildren, we were taught to trust less, with annual police talks on the perils of people we didn't know. My American friends had McGruff, a hard-boiled crime dog with a gravelly voice who warned of danger at every turn. To be a child in the 1980s was to be acutely aware that you could be done for on any given day. But in the Nordic countries, less so. Trust in Denmark has always been high and has actually been on the rise by a few percent in recent years. Children are taught that the world is an essentially good place and most people are not out to get them, which is madness, delusional, liberating. If you trust the people around you, you can be more relaxed, as my oldest Viking friend puts it. She's a formidable, flaxen-haired Nordic goddess with three children who gets things done, apparently effortlessly, and is surprised when others, i.e. me, don't. But she has a heart of pure Viking gold and has been helping me decode the Danish way ever since our arrival. And this much I learned early on. Vikings typically trust that children will figure things out, learn how to use their bodies, and manage their surroundings. Internationals always joke that there's no such thing as health and safety for Nordics, contrary to what Brexiteers would have us believe about Europe. Instead, there are lit candles everywhere. Four-year-old children saw wood and six-year-olds walk the family dog or bike to school by themselves. As my veteran Viking friend says, our children grow up free because they trust. This trust seems to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Denmark is the least corrupt country in the world, and even politicians, notoriously untrusted in most countries, enjoy a relatively good reputation. Nordic countries regularly top the UNICEF rankings in terms of happiness, education and equality. And children in Nordic countries generally have the highest rates of well-being globally. By contrast, youngsters in the UK and US are more likely to suffer from mental ill health than in almost any other rich country, according to UNICEF. A report from the Children's Society shows that the number of UK children who are unhappy with their lives continues to rise. In the US, a third of all teenagers now have symptoms that meet the criteria for an anxiety disorder, according to Harvard data. The US and UK models aren't working, So what are Vikings doing differently? What are the secrets to Viking parenting? And what can the rest of us learn from them? From pregnancy and birth to toddlerhood and school, I want to find out what it's like for children and their caregivers in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Iceland and Finland. Wait, I hear you cry, are Finns Vikings too? And is Scandinavia the same as Nordic? To which I say, it's complicated and not quite. There's often confusion about the Scandinavian countries, and conversations about my relocation regularly go something like this. How's the Dutch coming along? Me. I'm in Denmark. They speak Danish. Oh, OK then. How's the Danish coming along? Points to the middle distance. Look, a bird. Danish is tricky, and I still suck at it. But generally, the bewilderment runs deep. Google is Denmark, and the most searched terms that come up are an island? English-speaking? Part of Sweden? Answers, no, times three. There are three Scandinavian countries, Norway, Denmark and Sweden, whose languages share common characteristics. But there are five Nordic countries, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland and Iceland. Nordic is the term used to describe anything related to them, like Nordic design or Nordic cuisine. "'Norse' is used to refer to the ancient people who were native to these five countries and their common culture. "'What about those guys with the horned helmets and hipster beards?' friends ask. "'Me, do you mean Vikings?' friend nods vigorously. "'Despite every cartoon depiction ever, Vikings never wore horned helmets. "'We only think they did because of the German composer Richard Wagner.' For the 1876 production of his Ring Cycle, based on the Norse sagas, the costume designer included horned helmets. The show was such a hit that Vikings with horned helmets became standard. So it's all Wagner's fault. Huh, who were Vikings then? Well, Vikings were seafaring folk who roamed northern Europe from 800 to 1066 CE. The word Viking comes from the old Norse Vikingr, or to pirate. So was it all marauding, sex and dragons? Are you thinking of Game of Thrones? Could be, adopts faraway look. Mm, John Snow, not the newsreader. At this point, I bust out a portable projector for a Viking 101. Over the years of living Danishly, I've done my fair share of Viking geekery, visiting burial sites and racking up more runestones than I remember. I've ventured east following the Norseman's route to the Arab world to see picture stones firsthand showing images of Viking life as it was recorded at the time, cutting out the guesswork. I've hung out with archaeologists and historians who have attempted to school me. I've learned how Vikings travelled extensively on iconic longships, the ones with the oars and the big bendy sail, and how their impact on the history of Europe is widespread. Millions of Viking descendants exist today, many unaware of their genetic background. It could be you. Even the names of our days come from the Nordic tradition. Sunday is named after Sunna, the Norse god of the sun. Monday comes from Moonday, named after the god of the moon. Tuesday is Tyr's day, named for the god of war and law. Wednesday is Woden's day, named after the Norse god Odin, while Thursday is named after probably the best-known Norse god Thor, the one with the hammer. Friday gets a little hazy, doesn't it always? But it's either named after the Norse god Freya or the Norse goddess Freya or Frigg. What about Saturday, I hear you ask? Well, they were tired from all the marauding by then, so Saturday is just named after the Roman god Saturn. Vikings originated in what is now Denmark, Norway and southern Sweden. They travelled west to trade, spending time in Finland at ports along the southern coast en route to Russia. So the history of early Finland is surprisingly Viking-heavy. Denmark-based archaeologist Marika Magi argues that the Baltic Finns were Vikings too, but the world ignores this fact because Finns missed their moment. Vikings became really popular in Europe at the end of the 19th century, when Scandinavians started writing about them. But Finns were busy being an autonomous Grand Duchy of the Russian Empire around then. It was only after Finnish independence in 1917 that they could start talking about their Viking ancestors, but by then it was too late. Gutted. I know. The story was already being told, souvenirs sold, and the t-shirts printed throughout Scandinavia. What about Iceland? Didn't you mention Iceland? I did. I flick back through my PowerPoint and pick up the laser pen no one needs and only uses for teasing cats i point at the volcanically active island in the North Atlantic and explain how the country we now call Iceland was unpopulated before Norse settlers arrived in 874 CE. Today, it has a population similar to that of Stoke-on-Trent, a hundred words for wind, and a restaurant that exclusively serves tomatoes. So Iceland is in the Viking club. Footnote, Greenland, however, isn't. Greenland's current population is descended from the Thule culture, arriving in the 1200s. The Faroe Islands are also not in the Viking gang, having been settled 300 years before Vikings arrived. Got it. Scandinavia equals Norway, Sweden and Denmark. The Nordic countries equal Iceland, Finland, Norway, Sweden and Denmark. At this stage I put away my laser, lest local cats congregate, and send the newly minted Viking enthusiast on their way. I've got scouts to shuttle, axes to sharpen and wood to whittle. The whittling never ends. All before another round of coffee and canal snile. Cinnamon swells. But it's not all baked goods, hot drinks and hygge. The Nordic countries may be among the happiest on Earth, according to the latest UN report, but Vikings face the same challenges as the rest of us.